Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samhasambhutassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samhasambhutassa Bodhang namang sanghang namasami So, so far we've had a... Um, Kind of mixed luck with the internet. Uh, right now, it looks like things are going okay. So we'll make uh, we'll try to make good use of the time that we have. I'm, I'm I have in my mind. I'm, my mind is lingering a little bit on some of the questions or some of the issues that came up last night. Um. Around the uh, this idea, of there's uh, in the world of experiences, there's these two ends in the middle. <coughs> and then um, somebody, it was I think Tarek, asked a question about vibhavatana, or bhavatana, sorry, bhavatana. Um, and I think these things are related, and so. Somehow, maybe I'll, I'll just start talking and we'll see if something congeals out of this morass of, of pondering and reflecting on the idea. When I hear the phrase bhavatanha, of course, I'm reminded of the uh, turning of the wheel of the Dhamma Sutta. Because it's in that sutta that the Buddha first talks about Bhavatana. Uh, Bhavatana is one of the three cravings that perpetuate the round of existence or the round of samsara. So there's uh, craving for sense pleasure, kamatana, craving for existence or becoming or being, bhavatana and craving for non-existence or annihilation, vibhavatana. Those are the three. So these three different kinds of tanha, or three different kinds of craving, are said to be at the very root of the causes of our continually wandering through the realms of suffering, through samsara. And Tark's question was about... What um, what does one do to skillfully cut through this craving for becoming when our social interactions, so whether it's on social media or face-to-face, social interactions and uh, our own thinking is constantly reinforcing um, our identity, our identity view and this desire to be seen or uh, received or reckoned in a certain way. So we're, we're consciously or unconsciously, we're, we're, we're prone to uh, trying to perpetuate a certain image of ourselves in the minds of others. Uh, we're trying to be somebody to them. So maybe I'm trying to be a good teacher or you're trying to be a good student or uh, you want other people to look, uh, to look up to you or look at you with, re- with, uh, with respect. So you don't want to do anything that they'll see. That would be embarrassing. So uh, each one of these kind of very normal human motivations that we have 
in one way or another is connected with this idea that there's a me or a self uh, who needs to be promoted, needs to be defended, needs to be identified, needs to be seen, uh, or needs to hide, uh, uh, needs to be uh, uh, protected, needs to be safe. So all this, all this, uh, all these agendas that we have for ourselves, they're connected with bhavatana, the, the, this desire or this craving to become. And it's a bit of a, uh, it's a bit of a whirlpool. It's a bit of a, a, um, uh, a, it's tangled up in that when we have this craving to become, that craving to become is grounded on identity view, the, the idea that there's a me here who needs to become something or needs to get away from something, which is really what Vibhavatana is all about, is trying to make things stop, trying to get away from pain, get away from discomfort, get away from uh, anxiety, get away from things that we don't like. It's the exact same thing. It's just the, the, the inverse direction. There's a me who needs to get away from something, or there's a me who needs to get something. So bhavatanha and vibhavatanha are really two sides of the same coin. Uh, they're a little bit more, you could say, cognitive than Kamatana, which is the desire for pleasure, that's more. That's even more biologically based. You could say that you know uh, infants have a desire for pleasure, and they respond to pleasure even though they haven't got a sense of self. But once we develop a sense of self, then that becomes tends to become uh, our dominant um, motivating factor for most of our lives. So bhavatana, vibhavatana, um, depend on the self, and they reinforce the self. Um, the self reinforces the, the bhavatana and the vibhavatana. So those two things kind of um, mutually interact and mutually reinforce each other. And this is, I think, um, close to the heart of what Tarek was asking about. How does one skillfully cut through this craving for becoming? And there's a, there's a, uh, a trick. <laughs> In a way, Buddhism, the teachings of the Buddha... Um, they're a little counterintuitive. And so they can seem like a trick. You know, we have this little trick that we do with our minds. Uh, and the trick is this. Rather than doing something to cut through this craving for becoming, and sort of taking up the, taking up the sword and the shield and putting on your battle gear and going into battle against this craving, trying to overcome this craving, the trick is to not do anything and just watch. And it's very, it's very, uh, as I said, it's counterintuitive. And because it's counterintuitive and it goes against the grain of our habits, uh, when we, usually when we want something to happen, because it's being driven by either vibhavatana or bhavatana or kamatana, we want something to happen. Um, we're accustomed to doing something saying something, thinking something, in order to make it happen. But the essence of Buddhist practice, uh, a theme that runs throughout all the practices, is to uh, let go of things, let go of something, refrain from doing something, abstain, uh, hold back, hold your tongue, still the mind. 
let go of uh, trying to make things happen. And then pay very, very close attention to what's left when you take yourself and your attempts to manipulate out of the situation. So when we're doing sitting meditation and we're watching the breath rising and we're watching the breath falling, <coughs> or, <coughs> excuse me, or we're noticing the sensations at the tip of the nose as the air comes and goes. When we're, when we're really tuned in to those sensations, we're very carefully noticing each little jot and wiggle of sensation. All of our mental attention is taken up by that task that we've put ourselves to, and there's, the, there's simply the sensation and the knowing of the sensation. And as meditation progresses, there can even be a knowing of the quality of attention that's paying attention to the sensation. <laughs> so there's this, but the, the uh, um, mental faculties are caught up or are in fully engaged in observing what's actually happening. Not trying to make anything happen, not trying to push anything away, uh, not trying to um, create anything, not trying to, to, to destroy anything. So we, we, we have to use intention, attention, and our will, our effort, to get the mind to, to arrive at this state. We have to use the kind of ordinary uh, tools at our mental disposal. The desire to, to meditate is a, is a desire. Right? I, I want to meditate. It's kind of grounded in the same matrix of uh, cause and effect. Uh, it's bound up with bhavatanavi, bhavatana, kamatana, like everything else. So we have to start from where we actually are. We're, we're, we're the human realm. We're uh, burdened with bhavatanavi, bhavatana, and kamatana, the, the cravings for existence, for non-existence, and the craving for sensual pleasure. And the task that the Buddha puts before us is not to get rid of these things, but to understand them, to see them for what they are, and come uh, allow our minds to, in effect, uh, derive its own conclusion about what's going on here. So a lot of the teaching is helping us to direct our attention towards this, this issue and to... Um, uh, balance our mental faculties in such a way that we can see what's happening very clearly without the bias of preconceived uh, beliefs, ideals, uh, notions, the, without the ideal of self uh, interfering with our vision. Um, as we do this, as we get better at it, we develop this ability to notice how uh, cause and effect actually work how contact, like we hear, um, we hear a little bit of music, uh, contact contacts the ear. Uh, the mind may or may not take that up depending on how mindful the mind is or how sensitive it is to that music. But it will recognize it as music uh, and might even recognize the tune of the melody. Um, and these things all happen automatically, right? We don't reach out and grab the music uh, we don't force our mind to recognize the music. It just all happens by itself. But then there's this point where the mind can take that initial automatic response and start to elaborate it, start to maybe fill in some of the missing notes of the melody, maybe start to think of the, the lyrics that go along with that melody. 
maybe those lyrics will make mine think of some other lyrics, other songs that you like, and next thing you know, you're kind of dreaming about this, uh, some album from your teenage years. And so we've all been down that road where the mind will proliferate about something. And oftentimes we have no idea how we got there. We, we just wake up to the fact that the mind is spinning uh, ruthlessly about something that's not particularly important. Uh, so this is one of the habits of the mind, is to proliferate about whatever's current. So that proliferation of the mind is an aspect of becoming. Right? So we start off minding our own business, some music touches our ear, our mind takes it up and starts to proliferate. And, and the proliferation is being driven by our interest in the topic. Uh, to, to either, either we're repelled by the topic and we hope it doesn't get any worse, or we're attracted to the topic and we want to explore it further, um, but we're not aware that that's what's happening. It's, it's a, uh, one of the paradoxes of being a person is that most of the processes that make us up, that make up the personality, make up our, uh, the activities of our minds, uh, most of them tend to happen without us even being consciously aware that they're happening. I mean, our attention tends to be directed outwards towards the world, and we don't pay that much attention to how it is that our mind is, in effect, constructing the world that we find ourselves in, in terms of its emotional color and the tendencies that we have, how, how we tend to react to the world as we find ourselves in it. So bhavatanha and vibhavatanha and kamatanha are being driven by our contact and our history. So when, we, when the world contacts us, it tends to, to uh, incline our minds towards the habitual responses. The habitual responses were, were put in place by our prior history, the things that we did that we paid attention to, the conditioning that we had when we were children, the conditioning that we had this morning. And everything is constantly conditioning us. And the Buddhist practices are all intended to help us come to a deeper understanding of these processes. We're not trying to control the world necessarily. We're not trying to change um, who or what we are. We're not necessarily trying to be a better person. We're simply trying to understand what the heck is going on here. And what the heck is going on uh, is um, experiences are constantly arising and passing away. The mind grabs onto experiences and ignores some and grabs onto others and creates a static sense of self in the context of experience. This creation process is the thing that we need to understand if we want to become, if we want to step outside of it, if we want to wake up to the reality of what's happening. We have to study and see for ourselves how this works. Hearing about it is Step one, knowing about how this works is, is an important initial uh, exercise. And, and one's understanding of the theoretical underpinnings of this, uh, of this teaching can go very deep. But ultimately, what, what causes us to experience the freedom that the Buddha is promising, that the Buddha is pointing to, is our own direct experience of these, of these truths. The truth of... Um, suffering, uh, what suffering actually is. Uh, if we think that we already know suffering, 
um, if we fully understood suffering, we'd be able to get, we'd be able to let it go. So you, you can say in a sense that if you, if you're still suffering in your life, if you're still experiencing suffering and you want to escape from it, then those two facts, the experience of suffering and the, the desire to escape from it, and you don't quite know how to do that, um, that means that you have not yet fully understood suffering. Because when you fully understand suffering, the escape is built into the understanding. The understanding and the escape from suffering are really two sides of the same coin. So the way that we come to this understanding is by studying the mind. Because the mind is the creator of everything that we experience. That's the very famous verse of the first verses of the Dhammapada. The mind is forerunner of all things. And then that verse goes on to say that if one acts with a corrupted mind, then suffering will follow the way the wheel of the ox cart follows the hoof of the animal that pulls it. If one acts with a purified mind, then happiness follows one like a shadow that never leaves. So what this verse is pointing to is exactly the same issue, which is that our minds ordinarily, the untrained mind, is effectively um, beclouded or obscured from the truth by its presumptions about the way things work. Uh, there's a there's a, a, a kind of a funny saying that's, that pops to mind here. I think Mark Twain said something like this. It's actually much easier to fool somebody than it is to convince the person that they've been fooled. So once a person believes something, they look at a situation and they form an opinion about it, to convince them that they've been fooled by, they've been misled, they've been deceived, um, it casts their judgment in a bad light. Right? So we, we tend to hold on to our, our judgments, our perceptions, our beliefs, because if we were to um, admit that we're wrong, um, somehow it takes us down a notch in our own minds. So... Um, Mark Twain, I think, was talking about the general public in terms of um, politicians being able to fool them. So it's much easier, easier to deceive the public than it is to convince the public that they've been deceived. Uh, and this, is, this works also on the, the personal level. Right? So, so it's much easier for us to fall for the illusion of self than it is for us to believe, to really come deeply to believe, that we've been fooled all this time by our own minds, that our minds have been deceiving us about the nature of reality, the nature of the self, the nature of the outside world, the nature of everything. Look, um, the way Ajahn Chah once put it was, uh, you know, if you want to develop the right relationship with your mind, every time your mind tells you something, you just point a finger at it and you say, liar, like that. So your, your mind is constantly deceiving you as long as you're perceiving reality through the ordinary filters of our habitual conditioning. <clears throat> so, with that in mind, we can come back to this topic of bhavatana, vibhavatana, and what it is that we should do. How do we cut through these things in order to get to the freedom that the Buddha is promising? know the answer. The way out is to um, practice uh, Right view, right intention, 
right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right um, right meditation, I guess is a good way to put it. Um, and with all that comes wisdom. So it's the Eightfold Noble Path that when we practice it um, select, um, devotedly over a period of time, it slowly, slowly um, lifts the veil, you could say. We start to see for ourselves what the Buddha is talking about. When we get together for a day of mindfulness, we're really focusing on um, the, the aspects of the Eightfold Noble Path that have to do with, with concentration, with mindfulness, and with um, the development of wisdom. So right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. But effort, mindfulness, and concentration come together in a... In a um, a synergy when we're meditating. Um, and that's when we experience the, the meditation sort of being successful. We're, we're, focused, we're, we're directing our effort at putting attention on the body and paying attention to what's happening. Our mindfulness is right there helping us do that. That mindfulness means that we're remembering what to do when we set out to do something. And then uh, our as the mind becomes still and starts to... the the object itself starts to come into focus and we're able to hold on to it for increasingly long periods of time. Then mindfulness, effort, and concentration are working together as uh, like, like soap and water and cleaning something. The, the mind in that condition is a mind that's able to see more clearly what really happens. And so this, this is when the mind is in this condition, that's when you're much more likely to see something like um, the arising of the mind reacting to a sound. Right? Ordinarily, the mind hears, we hear a sound and we just, either are not paying attention or we react very habitually to it. Uh, a loud, annoying sound like a chainsaw uh, might make us feel irritated and wish it were different uh, or want to shut it off. A uh, beautiful sound, we might want to go hear it more carefully. Um, the, the, uh, the chime of our device notifying us that we've received some sort of feedback on our social media account might make us want to go see what people have to say. Um, so, you know, we, we're pushed around by our sense contacts in the ordinary, unmindful state of our worldly existence. But when the mind is in that state of, of mindfully paying attention to phenomena and has become still, is not proliferating, is not creating futures and pasts and identities. It's just paying attention to phenomena. Then it's, I'd say the mind is, is sharp and attentive and is capable of noticing these little nuances that um, undercut the illusion of this uh, entity that we call self. And to see how your mind operates more or less on automatic is one of the, the powerful events that can happen to uh, uh, support and to fulfill, reify, if you will, in a way, um, what, the, what the Buddha is pointing to about uh, mind is not self. Uh, consciousness is not self. We've all heard the, the teachings about uh, not self. The, the not self teachings have to do with recognizing that things that we ordinarily take to be the self or to be the possessions of a self, they really aren't. Right? They, they, they seem like they are. But it's only because we're, we're um, interacting with them and understanding them and uh, examining them 
in a kind of a superficial, habitual way, without really deeply seeing their their actual nature. But their actual nature is subject to inspection. We can come to know how the mind works, but only if we watch the mind, only if we're paying attention when the mind does things. And so it's a... a, a it's part of the trick of Buddhism. We, we calm the mind down. We make it very, very attentive to something very plain and not very interesting like the body or breathing. And we make the mind capable of sticking with it and paying attention. And that attentiveness um, is sort of global. So it, it's able to notice things like a pain arising in the knee and then how the mind reacts to the pain re- uh, arising in the knee. And repeated exposure to this... Um, uh, attentive, mindful, concentrated mind, repeated exposure to that condition, um, imbued with an understanding of what the, what the Buddha is pointing to, imbued with an understanding of Dhamma, uh, very naturally results in a personal understanding of the truth of Vibhavatanha, Bhavatanha, and Kamatanha, and how they lead to suffering. Once we see how something that we're doing with our mind creates suffering, it's, it's a very short, very easy um, next move to decide that it's not worth your time to, to drop it. So when you see the mind start to move towards getting annoyed about something and wanting to push it away, if you're really mindful, really attentive, um, and your concentration is good, you can see that whole thing evolving even before it gets fully formed. You can see it sort of well up out of the uh, the matrix of the mental factors and recognize where it's going, like how it, how it leads towards irritation, towards uh, unhappiness, towards saying and maybe even doing things which aren't very wholesome, uh, allowing the mind to generate uh, unwholesome trains of thought. And at that moment, as it's welling up and you're seeing it, you, you, you have the volitional opportunity to say, no, thank you. Just, uh, I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to drop it right now. And when you drop it, it just fades away. So those experiences of seeing things well up, deciding to drop them, letting them drop, experiencing the peace or the the non-disturbance that results from just letting things go. Um, So a concrete example. Um, I'm trying to teach a, uh, a day of mindfulness and someone decides to start a chainsaw outside the window and start cutting down, cutting up a dead tree or something. Um, the noise is painful. And so the, the, the contact touches the ear. The, uh, the noise itself is inherently unpleasant. The unpleasantness uh, activates the mind's rea- uh, negative reactions towards unpleasantness. If I'm not mindful, if I'm not paying attention, if my concentration is poor, I'm likely simply to feel a rising sense of irritation, annoyance, and uh, dislike. Uh, I might start thinking about how, you know, I've, I need to tell people not to start chainsaws when I'm trying to teach. And I might, my mind might start going down a whole pathway <clears throat> of generating a bunch of negative thoughts about that, uh, about that scenario. But if the mindfulness is strong and concentration is strong and there's a little bit of wisdom there, I can see the mind starting to go in that direction, that habitual direction of getting upset and go uh, basically say, uh, 
no thank you. I, I really don't want to have the mind get upset. Yes, it's still unpleasant, but that's okay. I, you know, I can live with it. It's not going to kill me. And just drop it. And what's left when you just drop something, whether it's a trivial thing or a big thing, what's left is this kind of... Um, it's a, it's a piece that's not dependent on external conditions. The chainsaw is still there, but the mind's not moving because of it. That peacefulness is what the Buddha calls happiness. So the ordinary happiness of the world, um, what we're usually accustomed to interacting with or dealing with or trying to get, um, we're trying to get happiness. The world seems to offer us happiness in the form of acquisitions, relationships, uh, situations, pleasurable experiences, um, uh, fulfillment of our expectations, <clears throat> praise, uh, wealth, uh, gain, all these things that uh, the Buddha calls the winds of the world. And the Buddha, the, the world also seems to offer unhappiness in the form of, of loss, uh, um, dispraise, um, infamy, um, not being seen, um, being threatened, uh, anxiety, fear, all kinds of things that, that the world also seems to be presenting us with or confronting us with. So this is the, 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 the pull and the push of the world outside. And you can see that they're exactly tied. They're symmetrical with, um, commensurate with, bhavatana and vibhavatana. So on the one hand, all the good things that the world seems to offer, all the happiness of the world, vibhavatana wants that. We want to become um, loved. We want to become famous. We want to become praised. We want to become seen. We want to become all these different things that the world seems to offer. And on the vibhavatana side, we don't want to be annoyed. We don't want to be disturbed. We don't want to be distressed. We don't want to be threatened. We don't want to be ignored. Right. So this is all the kind of the push and the pull of bhavatana, vibhavatana. As long as we're operating only at that level, that's all we'll ever have. The happiness and the unhappiness of the world. Bhavatana and Vibhavatana pushing us back and forth our whole life. What the Buddha points to is the middle way between these two extremes. He also calls happiness because that's really the only word that you have. Uh, sometimes he calls it peace. Sometimes he calls it release. Sometimes he calls it cessation. There's a lot of other words. But fundamentally it comes down to a desirable state of being or a desirable state that uh, is undisturbed and doesn't depend on external circumstances. This is the happiness of a practitioner, the happiness that the Buddha is talking about, the happiness of the cessation of craving and getting and losing, and, uh, the cessation of pleasure and pain, the cessation of chasing and fleeing. Uh, all those things die away when we stop participating in them, when we let go. We can only let go if we see how these, how these are causally connected, and the causal connection happens inside our own minds. So the contact of the world isn't making us unhappy or happy. The contact of the world comes in, touches our minds, we feel pleasure or pain, and then from that point, we make ourselves happy or unhappy uh, mentally. It's a mental act, uh, with the way that we engage with the contacts of the world uh, that brings about the ordinary worldly happiness and unhappiness. The Buddha's trick is to show us that it's possible to understand these processes uh, uh, in an almost intuitive way, this intuitive understanding of how the mind works from repeated exposure to watching it work, seeing for yourself how it works, using the uh, meditative uh, states to observe it. 
this is what brings about what the Buddha calls wisdom. And one who's possessed with wisdom doesn't make trouble for themselves, doesn't go chasing after uh, rainbows, uh, is basically at peace, at ease with whatever's happening the way it is, uh, because they're abiding in the peace and the happiness of the Buddha rather than the happinesses of the world, which require constant energy to pursue. So I think, now I know it's not a very direct answer the way I presented it, but that's that's the, uh, I think the answer for bhavatana, vibhavatana, and all the other uh, ills that we're beset with is to not try to get rid of them, but try instead to see them, how they how they work, see how they operate, and see the volitional component that's, that's involved there. And the only way to do that is to uh, practice the Eightfold Noble Path. And and especially the, the the wisdom aspect of the Eightfold Noble Path, um, which includes right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, but also right view. So right view is part of the reason that we have Dhamma talks, well, the reason that we study the suttas, the reason that we, um, we need fellow practitioners to help us develop right view. But ultimately it's up to us to, uh, to use our practice time both formally and informally, to constantly try to notice how it is that the mind generates suffering and how there's a possibility of escaping it. So those are my thoughts about the topic.